Have you ever wanted to put off work, avoid people, and just binge watch your favorite TV shows? You might have more in common with an advanced killing machine than you'd probably think. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with science fiction and fantasy author Martha Wells. Her most recent work is The Murderbot Diaries. Network Effect, the first full-length Murderbot novel, is out today. Martha and I discuss the challenges of writing non-human characters, amazing books we wish more people were reading, and the future of Murderbot. Let's see what she had to say. Martha Wells, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm thrilled you were able to take the time to do this. Uh, So I guess jumping straight in, one of the first questions I like to ask everyone is, how did you first fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? And when did you decide to become a writer? Uh, I think it was when I was I was a little kid, because that was back when, you know, we only had like five stations on the TV, the networks, and then a couple of independent stations. And there was an independent station I watched all the time when I was a kid that showed the Godzilla movies and it showed Irwin Allen and uh, Land of the Giants and uh, Lost in Space reruns and all that kind of thing. And so I always, I always just really gravitated towards science fiction and fantasy. And uh, the children's books I read were always, um, I always liked the fantasy ones better. And I, I can't really remember ever deciding I was going to be a writer. I think I knew I wanted to be a writer by high school, but I was, I was looking at careers in journalism because I, at the point I didn't know how you became a fiction writer. Um, and I didn't um, really have any kind of idea of how I was going to become a fiction writer until I went to uh, Texas A&M University as a freshman and met Stephen Gould and did a writing workshop with him. And then that's when there was a, a regional science fiction convention that took place on campus that was student run. And I was involved a lot with that. And that's how I kind of, I guess, started to get really actual career knowledge as opposed to just, I want to do this. Yeah, that, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity as someone uh, in a university, having that kind of writing instruction and the different science fiction events. Yeah, I was very lucky. Um, I actually... Um, we used to have, uh, well, we still do have Starlog Magazine, but it used to do a lot more fanish things back then. I'm talking about like in the, the early 80s, basically. And one of the things they did is had listings of fan clubs by state all from all over the country. And I saw Texas A&M with its uh, student science fiction fantasy club was like the closest one to me. And so that's why I picked it, picked it to go to as a university. Yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. That, uh, if I had known to look for things like that when I was deciding where to go to school, I definitely would have paid attention. Yeah, it was really handy. It was, Starlog was a nice resource back then because this was long before we had anything like the Internet. I think, it was, I think the, um, it was just the beginnings of the Internet. You know, later on, after I graduated, we're starting to see bulletin boards and that kind of thing. But back then, we just had magazines and fanzines. Well, I'm interested in how you decided to start writing, I guess, in fantasy, since it seems like uh, you did have kind of a background in science fiction and uh, a little bit, I know you had, I believe, some experience uh, with computer software and programming. So I guess I'm just curious, how did you 
make that move into fantasy? I think you reversed it. You mean I started in fantasy and moved into science fiction? Ah, yes, I did. How did you make that move? Uh, I guess, how did you make that initial leap into fantasy rather than science fiction? I, I don't know. I always just kind of, um, I read a lot of science fiction, and but I kind of, my first novel uh, was uh, The Element of Fire, which was sort of based on um, uh, 17th century France, the Three Musketeers-ish time period. And so I think once I wrote that, I kind of stayed with fantasy. My my second novel was more a bit now. Uh, City of Bones was really more science fantasy, I guess. It was more, um, I think it'd be a lot more common to see it now, um, fantasy with some some science fictional elements. Back then, it was kind of like they really wanted me to stick, the publisher really wanted me to stick with fantasy for the second book. Yeah, it does seem that uh, those genre lines have become more fuzzy over the recent years. Yeah, and I really like that because when I was, the books I was reading when I was growing up in the 70s, uh, science fantasy was not uncommon at all. Um, you know, fantasy with science fiction elements or science fiction with fantasy elements, it was all, you know, it was, um, it was pretty normal to see that. I really think in the 80s and 90s, maybe we see the, the categories try to become very strict and um that i always feel like strict categories like that and and all these definitions of what fantasy has to be i remember being on all these panels of fantasy has to you know what what define this type of fantasy and it's such strict (laughs) definitions like wanting to separate sword and sorcery fantasy from heroic fantasy and then epic fantasy and you're kind of like really (laughs) And it's like everyone's sort of struggling to make these definitions have make any kind of sense at all. And I really like what we're we're seeing a lot of now is where things are are it's it's there's not that those strict interpretations. Something can still be called an epic fantasy if it has you know science fiction elements or sword and sorcery elements or all of them put together. Right. I know uh, my experience has been with talking with other people that no one really has the same definition for what different subgenres should be categorized as. Uh, So it's a bunch of uh, arguments, I guess, that don't really go anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I was reading through some of your past interviews and I saw that you apparently have some sort of background in anthropology. Yeah, I have a, a, a bachelor's degree in anthropology and I did some field camp, uh, uh, work. Well, when I was in college. Uh, and I imagine, does that somehow influence your writing? I think it did a lot, especially when I write fantasy of trying to, it influenced my world building a lot of just basically thinking about um, how cities work, how societies work and how the cultures work and how 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 everything is sort of interdependent and um trying to make things not necessarily super realistic when, you know, when you're dealing with like magic, but also, but trying to make it so it feels like it's a system that, you know, your, your, your city or your culture is a system that's all working together and holding together, uh, even if magic is involved. Right. I know, uh, the most recent book of yours that I read, not your most recent published, was uh, The Cloud Roads, starting off the Rexura series. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that, how you're able to do that with characters that are not in any way human. Uh, so you're kind of removing that element of familiarity from it, but still constructing that cohesive society. 
It's just because your 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 character is from like a magical species doesn't mean you don't have to have a uh, verisimilitude in how their uh, how their society works, and you don't have to have consistency. I think. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. Well, I guess moving on towards your more recent work, could you tell us a little bit about the origin for the Murderbot Diaries? How did that story come to be? Uh, I don't. I was just talking about this the other day with someone. I I I was actually working on the Harbors of the Sun, which was the last novel in the Raxura series. And I was trying to make the the last two books a lot more epic, kind of on a grander scale. And so it was a lot of work. And I'd been working really hard on this novel. And I was almost towards the end. I just started, I was thinking of all these different ideas of what I wanted to do next. And I came up with this scene, basically, of, uh, it was a scene where Mensa goes into and knocks on the cubicle that Murderbot is in, in All Systems Red. And... I just, you know, was, you know, kind of going over who are these people and what's happening in this situation and, and realized that it would have to be a science fiction idea. Basically, it's not something I could, would work for fantasy. And I just stopped, what, you know, working on the book just long enough. I thought, well, I'll just write this idea down to make sure I don't forget it. Because at the time, I thought it was going to be a short story. And then I ended up writing like five pages just like that. And so I made myself set it aside until I could finish the novel and then went back and, and started on All Systems Red like the day after I finished the, the first draft of the novel. Uh, so I'm not really sure where the idea came from. It was just I was just working, like working my brain really hard to finish this book and, and coming up with a lot of other things. And I, I think I actually saw that interview where you were talking about this recently, and uh, you were going to make Murderbot a sad story, and I'm yeah. so glad you didn't. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> I don't. I don't particularly like sad stories, sad endings. I've I've never liked them. Yeah, I I would agree. I can appreciate them. I think more than I actually like them. Yeah, it's sometimes that's the. I mean, sometimes that's the right ending for the story. I think it's trying to find the right ending to the story and not trying to force it into a depressing ending just because you think it should have a depressing ending. Exactly, and at least I mean, in hindsight, as a reader, I think that Murderbot should not have a depressing ending. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so Murderbot does do a few different things than at least my admittedly limited experience with science fiction because I am more of a fantasy reader. But they don't necessarily follow a path that lots of popular artificial intelligences do in media. So they're not longing to become human. They're not bent on revenge for past wrongs. Uh, so I guess, why is it important to you to set Murderbot on this different path? I think it's just what I wanted to do when I first started thinking about an AI character and started working on the story. I just didn't want it to be, um, and I'm not sure where this came from, where the idea came from. I didn't want it to be a, a artificial intelligence or machine intelligence that wanted to be human. To me, that seemed like a human's idea of what a machine intelligence would want and not what a real machine intelligence might want. Because again, you think of some stories, and I think, you know, and there's a lot of great stories where machine intelligences want to be human or become human, but the idea of all the different things a machine intelligence could do, and the idea of wanting to give that up to be in just a, a, an organic body, an organic body that's also uh, subject to all the problems organic bodies have, and it's very uncomfortable. It's like if you, it just doesn't seem... It didn't seem like something a real machine intelligence would want. 
so I just wanted to kind of play with the other idea and also the idea of um, not wanting revenge. Cause again, I think, I think it actually, this is actually stated in one of the novellas, but the idea that it's a, it, it's more of a human thing to want revenge for these, for past wrongs. It's a human or, uh, or past injuries. It's a, it's a human way of thinking. And I wanted to try to come up again with, how a machine intelligence would regard these things and try to make it feel different and not just like, you know, a, a human in a robot costume. And again, I think right. a lot of stories have done really cool things with, um, with those, with, with that type of, of idea of the, with that type of machine intelligence, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. And, to me, at least, it feels like you also managed to do something different, not just from, I guess, the artificial side of the AI, but more from the relatable side. So I know as an introvert myself, I very much identified with Murderbot, just wanting to be left alone, uh, having maybe sometimes difficulty making eye contact and wanting to opaque their faceplate, uh, watching conversations through video cameras instead of living it out like physically in person. Uh, so that's that's something that I don't see a lot of in stories. Yeah, I'm not sure where a lot of that came from. It uh, I'm I was I'm very introverted too. I've gotten kind of over it, you know, as you do when you're kind of as you get older and you're more you get more experience. And so I can kind of fake being an extrovert when I need to when I need to. <laughs> but um, I'm really at the core an introvert, so I was putting a lot of that, a lot of just personal experience into Murderbot and uh, how I would feel in this situation while trying also to think like, how would I also feel if I wasn't human? Also, just the fact that Murderbot finds so much comfort in binging soap operas or serials on television instead of, I don't know, whatever we would imagine that uh, intelligent machines would like to do in their free time. That was something that I could also get behind. Uh, and I'm glad... It, it could have been played for comedic effect, but I don't think it really was. I think it was very ironically humanizing. Yeah. And I'm, again, I'm not sure where these ideas came from, but it's been, it's been so long, but just, I, I kind of do remember sitting there thinking of the whole, the first line of what would you, if you had all this capacity to um, access all these different, these different feeds, these different sources of information and these, these basically the, that was open to you. And once you suddenly, when you went from basically not being able to do that to suddenly having all this, this flood of information and movies and stories and, and shows and all these different things, it would be like a kid in a candy store. And so wouldn't you rather do that <laughs> going around murdering people and then getting killed for doing it? Or would you rather just sit here and, and, start going through all this enormous amount of, of media and things that were available to you now. So it's like, I know which one I'd pick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, that seems like a pretty easy decision for it's, me. It's an easy decision. But yeah, I mean, the, the TV shows were something I really enjoyed in the Murderbot novellas. And I think I've heard before that you based each of the shows off of real life TV shows. Yeah, because that helps me uh, be able to kind of think about what might be going on in the show so I can reference it um, in the stories. Like uh, the rise and fall of Sanctuary Moon is kind of based loosely on how to get away with murder, but uh, happening in a space colony. 
So it's that kind of, you know, evening drama with a lot of, um, you know, bits of action and excitement and everything. Um, and then some of the others, the one for that's mentioned in, there's one mentioned in Network Effect that's um, Time Stream Defenders Orion, I think is what that's called. And it's basically based on Legends of Tomorrow, you know, World Hoppers that Art and Murderbot watch um, when, he, when they first encounter each other is uh, kind of Stargate and Stargate Atlantis. And then there's, I think there's one that's mentioned in briefly in Rogue Protocol that's kind of based on the Alien movies. Uh, now, now that you're explaining the real world parallels, I can definitely kind of see that. And I have to say, I'm thrilled that Network Effect, uh, this show is based off of Legends of Tomorrow because I absolutely love that TV show. Yeah, that is, that is, that is a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, my wife and I both watched it. And I think that was our favorite of the whole Arrowverse of, ugh, I have no idea how many shows they're up to now, like nine or something like lot, that. Yeah. yeah, but it's just so fun that you can do something totally wacky, different every episode, uh, but also have like these really, really compelling characters that aren't what you would often see in a comic book live action. Yeah, and I like the way they started. They built it. That you know, at first it was very kind of dark and serious, and then they kind of like the way they've moved out of that into just completely unknown territory. Yes, absolutely. They they really feel like they were trying to follow a straightforward roadmap kind of in the first season and then season two came around and like well that's over <laughs> let's just do whatever we want yeah it's it's sort of like at some point you have to kind of do you you kind of have to go your own way and or you're just going to be copying other stuff that's out there and they have to kind of i think they had to do something original to just to, to define the show you know instead of basically just being a copy of one of the others and i'm really glad that they 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 chose this path. It's been really fun. Yeah, it, it's an absolute blast. I still need to catch up, but the first few seasons were really, really fun. Well, moving on, since we've now mentioned it, your latest work is Network Effect. I know, at least for me, the biggest question I want to ask first is, will we be seeing more of Art? Yes, Art is, in, art is a major character in Network Effect. Fantastic. I know uh, the lovingly named Asshole Research Transport was <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the novellas, so I'm very happy to hear that they make a comeback. That was one of the reasons I wrote the novel, is I wanted to get Art and Murderbot back together, and I'd been trying to think of a way to do that, and I finally did, and um, and decided to make it a full um, a full length novella novel. Yeah, and uh, I can think of no uh, more exciting reason as a Murderbot fan for a full-length book to be written than that reunion. <laughs> well, so since you do have this uh, bigger length to work with now, uh, what kinds of things were you able to expand upon in Network Effects now that you have that novel instead of novella length to work with? Just doing a bigger story, uh, having more room for more of the cast of characters to be involved, because with the novellas, there's just not a lot of room for you know, a ton of other characters besides Murderbot and one or, you know, one other major person, basically. So being able to have a different, you know, a fairly large group of characters and get to have fun with them and have the, um, you know, the link to be able to do that. Um, and that's actually what I'm a lot more used to. Cause, uh, um, I think before all systems read, I'd only written four. Actually, I, yeah, I did, uh, four novellas for the Raxura books. And that was probably my, I think that was my first time to write in the, write any novellas. So I'm more used to working at this length. Right. Do you, do you find that it's easier to kind of have, I guess with all systems read, you're starting 
point blank from the beginning with that shorter work. Uh, was that a really different experience from having like a tie-in novella with the Raxara books? Um, I think it was, it's, it's, it's always easier to, at least for me, to start something new because you don't have to worry about all your established world building. You can just kind of go and come up with anything you want. And so with the, with the Rexer and novellas, I was really having to look for, cause some of them were set. One was set before the series started, uh, back in the past. And one was, um, basically at the, the at, it was after the first three books and then one was earlier. And so they were all these all different time periods. So I really had to kind of look at where, make sure I was putting them into that timeline um, in the right way and not mentioning stuff that hadn't been <laughs> invented yet kind of in the, in the world and make sure that the, that I had uh, the continuity was right. So with all systems read, I was just like starting off and I could do anything I wanted basically. So that's always a bit easier. Yeah, I can imagine it's nice to have that freedom to play around with. So I guess both the Raxora books and the Murderbot Diaries uh, feature non-human main characters. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are some of the challenges you found in writing characters that aren't human? I think I, it wasn't necessarily writing them I've ever had trouble with. Um, it's something you have to... Um, I think it helps to have experience at it. I've always tried to do characters that weren't very much like me. And actually one of the problems I see with um, beginning writers when I'm working with them is there's a tendency, especially if it's a difficult decision or plot point in the story is trying to default to what you would do as a person in that situation rather than what your character would do. And kind of once you really realize that you're doing that and, and get over it, I think it's a lot easier to write, you know, characters that are further and further outside your experience um as far as like writing you know non-human characters goes um one of the hardest things is getting people to accept non-human characters which is very odd because you think in science fiction and fantasy you know aliens and you know fantasy creatures are are very common but they're so often seen through a human lens and so apparently, and I didn't realize this because I always liked, I always loved stories with non-human characters, but um, people are just not as accepting of a non-human character as the main viewpoint character, the, the main point of view character. And a lot of people won't accept that. So that's one reason I think why it was very difficult to sell the Cloud Roads and the Raxura series. It took about two years for the Cloud Roads to find a publisher and people said they didn't understand it um, when it was when they would reject it and say they didn't just didn't understand it. It didn't, you know, it was hard to follow. And I was like, well, it's it's one point of view. It's a linear narrative. I didn't understand what was confusing. But yeah, some people won't accept non-human characters. And I've I've had conversations with people where they were just like, how you can't have, you know, you how can you have a a, a non-human point of view character? It's like, well, you can have a non-human person. Your point of view character is still a person. They're just not human. And there's kind of a disconnect there. So that was really odd. I had not, I, that was not something I, that was not a situation I anticipated encountering, basically. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to me because I guess relatively recently I've learned that I am a very non-visual reader. And so you can describe the craziest non-human looking character imaginable. 
that's not going to really affect how I relate to them uh, because you're putting me as the writer inside their head anyways. They don't think of themselves as, oh, that non-human character. They're just who they are. Yeah. It seems like to me a lot of work as a reader to sort of distance yourself from your point of view character, especially in modern fiction where it's like you're, you're kind of trained as a reader to see through the eyes of your point of view characters and, and not try to pull yourself separately. So it just seems very, it seems like a lot of work to try to do that and not just kind of relax and go with the flow of this, of this point of view. Yeah. I mean, for a genre that's so lauded often for its escapism, you would think that that's part of the appeal is to step outside your shoes for a little bit and experience something different. Yeah. It's just, it's just really strange. Yeah. Well, what about from more the mechanical side of things, the logistical side? I know the Raxara, they can shapeshift, they can fly. That's not really something that a human can do. And then Murderbot has access to all sorts of information uh, that a regular human wouldn't. So do you find that that's, that's challenging to work with all of those extra tools in their toolbox? Yes, you have to you have to think about it a lot. It's a lot more work. Um the Rexurus series, it was pretty easy to get that down and think about and have to think about all the times, you know, they would have their abilities and think about how their abilities would affect each, you know, action scenes and the situations they would get into. So that was fairly, uh, once I once I got into it, it was fairly easy. Murderbot is a lot harder being able to access all these different systems. And it's, it's just makes uh, coming up with the action scenes and the situations a lot more logistically difficult. And complicated because you have to sit there and think, what would it be able to do in this situation? Well, it'll be able to do about five or six different things, and the reader is probably going to think of those, and you have to kind of account for all of them. And then you end up using them as part of the plot. And so it's just this constant trying to push myself to really think about, think outside the box and think about what it would be able to do. It usually takes me 11 to 12 months to write a novel, and it took me 18 months to write Network Effect. And the, the other Murderbot books have been the same way. All Systems Read was the only one. I usually write around 1,000 words a day when I'm really able to get going. And so and I pretty much wrote All Systems Read straight through. It took about a month. And then with the other novellas, which were not that much longer, I think All Systems Read is a, like 31,000 or 32,000 words. And the, each of the others is around, I think, 34,000, 35,000 and um, they each took me three months. And a lot of that was writing, you know, five to 10,000 words and then taking most of it out and starting over again. Uh, and my idea about the plot and everything and just kind of thinking, having to really work on the logistics of, of stuff. I'm used to doing really complicated action scenes, but this just with Murderbot's abilities make everything so much more complicated. The network effect was the same way. I'd write 5, 10,000, 20,000 words and then go in and have to take it out. That was mostly the first half of the novel, though. Once I finally got past or close to the halfway point, it started to get a lot easier. And I was able to, because I, I knew a lot more about what the rest of my plot was going to be. So it was a lot easier to figure out. But that first half was pretty rough, <laughs> having, having to work through all that. I guess even outside of just the pure logistics of like, say, for the action scenes, if you write complex action scenes, with all of the sort of extra capabilities that Murderbot has, did you have any trouble like balancing, analyzing every angle from a situation with the in the moment kind of emotional feel of the action? 
Well, Murderbot's a little different since its mind is working a lot faster than the people around it. So that's why I try to get in there is it does really have more time to kind of look at what's going on and make these decisions because to the humans, the stuff is happening almost too fast for them to understand. And for it, it really has time to look around and see what's going on and think about it. So I try to keep that in mind. And one thing I've always had trouble doing is I I have trouble. uh, I'm not usually much of an outliner. I like to kind of go by the seat of my pants and kind of figure out as it's going along as where I'm going as, as the book is, as I'm writing the book. But, uh, I've never been able really to outline action scenes. And that was one of the things I realized when I did a star Wars novel and I did two Stargate Atlantis novels is that, uh, they wanted outlines and the, when the, when I described you know, like major set action pieces in the outline, they never ended up working out for me because I realized I have to really be, I can't just kind of construct the action scene from the outside and then go into the POV of the character. I have to be in the POV of the character to figure out how the action scene is going to work or there's just stuff I miss and it doesn't work. And it sort of, it sort of just works on paper, but it doesn't actually work when I'm actually trying to get the characters to do it and really like thinking in depth about the situation and what they have at hand to use and what all the, the, um, uh, different elements are going to be. So Murderbot is kind of taking that difficulty and just making it, (laughs) making it so much worse because you have so many other different (laughs) elements you have to think about. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I guess how has the writing experience with, Murderbot compared to those tie-in novels that you've mentioned is it having to like being forced into an outliner is that the main difference or was there a lot of other things you didn't expect no I I don't outline with Murderbot um well the part of the the thing that is similar is the fact that um when you do a series even if if it's your own series you're making up as you go along you have to have it be internally consistent. And so it's kind of the same thing you get when you're writing in someone else's world. You have to kind of stop and make sure, you know, you're not saying something you've said, doing something you've said is impossible previously. And you, and if it is, and if you do need to do that, you need to think of a reason why it's not impossible anymore. You have to kind of stick to the canon that you've come up with. So that is kind of writing any kind of series, I think, is kind of very similar to writing in someone else's world. It's like even though it's you're the one who's made all those decisions, you're kind of committed to those decisions now. And so you have to make sure it's consistent. Yeah, I can imagine you have to have sort of a series Bible or something either way, whether it's something you wrote yourself or something you're handed from a major franchise. Yeah, and I'm not really good at doing that. It's like I always kind of (laughs) go along and not think because all my series I've done. I don't know that I'm going to do something else. And that's, I'm always just like thinking of it as a standalone. And then I'm sitting there wishing I had like kept track of all this information instead of having to go back through and read the book again and try to figure out, you know, what all this stuff was. So, um, keeping making series Bible from the beginning. I don't know. I guess I feel like it's, it's, it's like bad luck or something. If I make a series Bible, then people won't like the book and then I'll never write another anything else in this in this world. So Yeah, well I can imagine there's the pressure as well. Like what if if you're writing by the seat of your pants, what if you want to change something? <laughs> then you have yeah. to make sure you're changing it in the Bible as well. Yeah, basically you have to it's it's keeping track of it and it's kind of it and it's I don't know, might uh, I know a lot of people like to do their world building in advance and kind of work everything out. 
And I've never done that. It's just I don't feel very creative like that. I feel creative when I'm actually kind of in a, a character's head and kind of experiencing the world with them as they discover it. And I think that translates well to a reader, I, I would think, because I know I've read a few books where you can tell that the author has a very comprehensive world mapped out before they even started writing the first page. Uh, and sometimes that can show. Yeah. And I think it can limit your creativity, too. At least for me, it's like I don't like, if, even as a reader, I don't like fantasy worlds or science fiction worlds that have a lot of boundaries. So they're, you're sort of starting out and you're being told the, ex, the, the extent of this world. It's kind of like in, in very simplified terms, it's like a fantasy novel that stops, starts out, well, there's just our valley and then this other valley and there's nothing else. You know, we're surrounded right. by, you know, the ocean and there's nothing else. And it's like, well, that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not very exciting. You know, it sort of immediately eliminates so many possibilities. And I kind of prefer fantasy worlds as a reader and a writer where anything could happen. I'm in the eyes of this character and they only know so much about their surroundings and they only have a certain knowledge of, of their environment, and they're going to go out of that environment into someplace strange. I really prefer that. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really effective to be able to see the world through new eyes from the character's perspective. So you're kind of learning along with the character. Yeah. Well, looking towards the future a little bit, I think I've heard you say that you recently sold a short story to Uncanny Magazine. Is there yeah. anything at all you can tell us about that? Um. A little bit. It's a it's a fantasy short story. It's it's a fantasy short story basically about it's a happy story about dying in a hurricane is basically <laughs> um, oh, well that's that's a hell of a conflicted elevator pitch. Yeah, I don't live on the coast. I'm about a three hour drive from the coast, but it is we do get hit by hurricanes a lot, so it is something I think about. And it's probably got some elements in there about climate change too and just massive change and um, disaster and all that kind of thing. That does definitely sound like a happy story. Yeah. And I believe you've also mentioned maybe considering writing another fantasy series after Murderbot. Uh, do you have any ideas of what that might entail? Um, not really so far. Um, I'm still right now, I'm kind of in a period where I'm trying to decide what I really want to work on next. And I've got a couple of different ideas. I'm not sure if I'm going to do more Murderbot yet. I'm not sure if I want to go and try to do something more conventional or whatever. I just, I'm, I'm still kind of trying to make that decision. Okay, that makes sense. That's, that's probably creatively a good place to be in with those options open to you. Yeah, it's just that just with everything going on right now, it sort of makes it harder to kind of contemplate. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 definitely. And I'm wondering if nine months to a year and a half from now or so, if we're going to be seeing a lot of... Uh, locked up or plague stories coming out from people. Yeah, I wouldn't be really surprised. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think I'm in a headspace to read that right now, but maybe uh, once there's a little bit of distance. Yeah, I, I think it'll probably be more common to see them on TV. I think we'll see shows, mm. particularly um, not necessarily science fiction and fantasy, but contemporary TV shows probably dealing with this a lot more than we will well, you know, I'm sure we'll see a lot of contemporary novels doing it too, but um, I think the TV shows are probably going to get there first. Yeah, that's that's probably true. And I know uh, that it seems like there was recently a wave of fantasy novels that were kind of playing with some of the similar themes to what we're living out in real time right now. So <laughs> I wonder if people are really going to be that quick to publish more. Yeah, yeah. 
But I guess I did hear you say you're not sure if you're coming back to Murderbot, so I'm happy to hear that the door isn't closed on that permanently, necessarily. Oh, no, it's not closed permanently. Good. And if you do end up returning, would you want to explore the novella format again or maybe keep with the novels? Uh, Probably maybe a couple of novellas, a couple more novellas. Um, It just kind of depends on the length of the story and, you know, another possibly another novel. I'm just really not sure yet. Well, as someone who's always looking to discover lesser known stories, and I know uh, reading through your blog, you are great about constantly coming up with recommendations. Are there any books that you've read lately that you'd recommend? Oh, um, I just read um, The Empress of Salt and Fortune. It was a novel. I think it's a novelette or a short novella. That was really excellent. That's a fantasy one. I'm reading, I've uh, been reading catching up on Sharon Shin's books. She had a new trilogy come out. I think it's the Uncommon Echoes trilogy, fancy trilogy. Really enjoyed that. I've been earlier this year, I read um, C.L. Polk's Storm Song, I think it's called. That's the second one in her, um, um, gosh, now I've forgotten the name of the first book. But it was a sequel to Which Mark was the first one? Yeah, Which Mark was the first one. Uh, it was a sequel to Which Mark, and that was really uh, enjoyable. I uh, read Claire Cooney's Desdemona in the Deep. That was really good. Oh, and I just read The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. I've been looking forward uh, to I'm, it I'm that looking book. forward to diving into that one. I haven't picked yeah, it up yet. It's really good. Oh, and I, um, the, the Poppy War. Yes, yes, I love that series. Yeah, the third one is should come, be coming out soon. Well, maybe not soon. I'm not sure. I can't remember when the second one came out. Uh, time is just very strange lately. It's just like feels like a two or three years since December. Um, <laughs> it feels like two or three years since a couple weeks ago. Sometimes a couple weeks ago. Oh, what else? Oh, and um, there's another one. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, the Devabad series. Uh, it's the first one was the Kingdom of Copper, I think. Oh, was that a City of Brass? I think Kingdom of Copper is book two. Yeah, and I think it's Kingdom of Copper and then City of Gold or something. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. I've read the first book. Uh, I'm getting ready, I think, actually later this week to dive into the second book. Yeah, I enjoyed the second one a lot and the, and really looking forward to the third one. Uh, that's a good trilogy. And I know uh, Laura Lamb and Elizabeth May have a book coming out, Seven Devils, that looked really good. There's just so much new, cool stuff coming out. It's really hard to keep up with. And there's things that kind of pass me by and I have to run and try to catch up. Oh, I really loved Anne Leckie's book, The Raven Tower. I've heard some really good things about that. I I haven't tried it yet. It's very different. Um, uh, I really enjoyed it. It's kind of like a... um, a mystery where part of the mystery is who is the narrator. Oh, that's <laughs> who's the narrator who's telling the that's story. That's interesting. It was really good. Um, and also, uh, I think it was oh, the Wormwood trilogy, which I think is up for best series for a, or for the best series. You go now. That was a really good book. That's a science fiction kind of near futureish um, sort of alien invasion story. It was really really good. Yeah, <laughs> I read. I try to read a lot. I try to keep up with what's going on. Yeah, and the the field is really evolving so quickly. It's really fascinating to see where it's going. Yes. Oh, and again, it's like speaking of that I read. I really enjoyed Gideon the Ninth, um, which was so much fun. And I got to read Harrow 
Harrow the Ninth already, which I think was supposed to come out maybe in June and actually had to get put back a little bit because of all the stuff. Yeah, which is frustrating because I got to read Harrow the Ninth as well, and now I have to wait two months longer to talk to anyone about it. Yes. <laughs> It's such a good story, and um, and it's going to be forever until the third one comes out, it feels like. Well, I think that about wraps up everything I have for you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview, Martha. It's been great having you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. It's nice getting to talk to someone when we're all kind of stuck here at home. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's nice to have social interaction some. Yeah. I wonder if more people are actually uh, downloading podcasts and and looking for video interviews and so forth because of that. It does make it does seem they are really nice. <laughs> they're they're always they were always fun, but now there's they're a lot more uh, necessary. I think. Right, especially I think most book tours are now becoming virtual events, uh, yeah. and conventions are going online as well. Yeah, I've got some virtual events coming up for Network Effect. They're not quite nailed down yet, I think. But uh, yeah, and they'll be around the first week of May. So, All right. Well, again, this has been wonderful, Martha. Well, thank you. It was really great getting to talk to you. Yeah, it was great speaking with you as well. You can find Martha Wells on Twitter as at MarthaWells1 or at our website, MarthaWells.com. There has never been a better time to dive into Martha's books. As of last week, the books of the Raxara series are all available in audio, and Network Effect, the first full-length Murderbot novel, is available today. Check out our show notes and blog post for the virtual tour schedule Martha is doing in early May. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, where you get early access to episodes before anyone else, and we get to improve the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.